You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information Years ago, while I was a freshman at the University of Buffalo, a few of my friends had a wee bit too much to drink one night, and they decided to go in search of a Christmas tree for our dorm suite. I awoke the next morning to find what could only be described as a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. Branches were few and far between, while their tree decorating was exactly what you'd expect from a bunch of drunk teenage males. They used toilet paper as a substitute for garland, Playboy pictures hung from the branches, and empty beer cans were used as ornaments. I couldn't help but laugh every time I walked by it. Today my wife and I own enough ornaments to decorate half a dozen Christmas trees, yet we only own one. My guess is that we're not alone in that respect, yet historically it was not always that way. You see, prior to the late 1800s, most Christmas trees in the United States were decorated with fruits, nuts, and paper ornaments. Those shiny glass ornaments that everyone loves, well, they can be traced back to the early 1800s. That's when glassblowers in Lauscher, Germany developed reflective panoramic balls that were intended for window and garden displays. By the mid-1800s, they had created smaller versions that were designed for use on Christmas trees. These early ornaments were known as kugels, and they were typically made in the shape of grapes, acorns, and mushrooms, and silvered on the inside with lead or zinc. That's what made them so reflective. Over time, these evolved into the shiny, thin glass ornaments that we're so familiar with today. Surprisingly, these new glass ornaments were slow to catch on. Well, this all changed in 1880. That's when a man named Frank Winfield Woolworth, who was better known to the world as F.W. Woolworth, probably anyone over the age of 30 knows exactly who I'm talking about, or at least his business, well, he approached a Philadelphia importer in search of cheap Christmas toys for his newly started business. Instead, the importer showed Woolworth a bunch of colored glass Christmas ornaments that were unlike anything that he'd ever seen before. Woolworth told the importer that he wasn't interested because he was certain that they wouldn't sell. Not only would no one know what they were, but he was very concerned about breakage while being shipped to his store. So the importer made Woolworth a deal that he couldn't refuse. 
Not only could Woolworth mark these up high enough to make a handsome profit, but he guaranteed that if Woolworth didn't sell $25 worth, he could get a full refund. I mean, think about it. What did he have to lose? So Woolworth agreed to take the merchandise. Within two days of first placing those ornaments on display in a store, Woolworth sold them all out. So you can bet for the following Christmas, he ordered a large quantity of these glass ornaments, but once again, he sold all those out. And once Woolworth's business had grown large enough, he was able to knock out the middleman and, of course, import the ornaments directly from Germany. If you think about it, it's hard to believe that Woolworth's incredible fortune was largely due to that initial success with glass Christmas ornaments. It's crazy, isn't it? Prior to 1939, an estimated 50 to 80 million ornaments were imported annually to the United States. The bulk of these were made in Germany, and a large percentage of them were sold by Woolworths and similar stores. And then the Second World War broke out, and the supply of German Christmas ornaments came to an abrupt halt. It was the perfect opportunity for a new American industry. Perhaps the man who most benefited from this need for domestically manufactured Christmas ornaments was a guy named Harry Harrison Heim. Born in Baltimore on March 14, 1883, he made his way west prior to World War I to work as a display manager for the Marzen department store in San Diego. Well, the Great Depression forced the closure of a dress shop that he operated there, and in 1932, he relocated back to Baltimore so that a family member could receive medical treatment at Johns Hopkins. Harry, along with his son Harry Jr., well, they scraped by doing whatever kind of store and nightclub decorating work they could find. Times were certainly tough. Then, while working on a Christmas decorating job, he made the serendipitous observation that would forever change his life. It was a simple Christmas decoration that had been made from three brightly colored cellophane straws. So he went home and used that inspiration to create a Japanese-themed Christmas ornament, which proved to be a tremendous success. But then sales came to an abrupt halt in 1938 with the rise of anti-Japanese sentiment. His company, which was called Santa Novelties Incorporated, was on the verge of going under, so Heim naturally looked elsewhere to supplement his sales. He began to focus on the manufacture of hand-blown glass balls. Initial attempts to create the glass ornaments were not successful. In fact, Harry Jr. was nearly blinded in one factory accident, but soon they were able to get it right. Heim later stated, quote, I knew nothing about it. I hired a glassblower and he didn't know anything either. But we worked at it and in six months offered our first balls. They were rotten. He continued, But we got encouragement because we were on the right track and finally hit the secret. He claimed to have been down to his last $50 when a company that was also a bit down on its luck, although nowhere near as bad, You see, they couldn't get any German-made Christmas decorations. 
So they came and knocked on his door. Any guesses what company that may be? F.W. Woolworth. They place a very large order for his newly designed Christmas balls, and it saves Santa novelties from bankruptcy. From that point on, the company just grew exponentially. By 1944, his company was producing 12 million, that's hard to believe, 12 million Christmas tree balls every year. 90% of its output went to Woolworths. Heim was suddenly rolling in the dough, but he was experiencing growing pains. Basically, his business had outgrown the antiquated factory that he operated in a former brewery at 3900 East Lombard Street in Baltimore. He was in need of a larger facility. And that's when fate stepped in. About 20 miles northeast of Washington, D.C. lies the small town of Savage, Maryland, and it's anything but savage. For nearly 200 years, this quaint village was home to the Savage Manufacturing Company. They produced cotton duck, which is basically a heavy-duty canvas. And nearly all of what the company produced was sold to other manufacturers to turn into a finished product, whether that be as sailcloth for ships, coverings for fire hoses, or canvas for conveyor belts. World War II had been an incredibly prosperous time for the company, but they were unable to operate at a profit once the war had ended. Sadly, on September 5th of 1947, it was announced that the Savage Manufacturing Company was to permanently shut down. This was devastating news for the residents of Savage. Not only did more than 350 of its employees live in Savage, but the company literally owned the town. Half of the homes in the town were owned and operated by the mill, and the company provided the electricity, the water, the sewage, the garbage collection, police and fire protection. They even operated the town's grocery and dry goods store. Savage was the ultimate company town, and without the company, one wondered what would happen to the town. And this is where Harry Heim enters the picture. As I had mentioned a couple of minutes ago, he was in need of a larger manufacturing facility, and here was the perfect business opportunity. So in December 1947, Heim purchased the entire town. That included nearly 500 acres of land, the old cotton duck mill, 175 homes ranging in age between 15 and 150 years old, and basically everything else that came along with it. The purchase price was a cool $450,000. That'd be about $4.6 million today. Heim made immediate plans to rehabilitate the town. Not only did this include moving his ever-growing business into the old mill, but he planned to transform Savage to make it look like the quintessential 19th century town. About 60 of the homes were immediately sold to their occupants at below market prices, while the remainder were to be fitted with modern kitchens and bathrooms. It's hard to believe, but many of these homes still lacked bathrooms in the 1940s. Yet Heim had even grander plans for Savage. 
With a bit of Walt Disney imagination, he planned to turn the entire town into a permanent Christmas town. It would be the biggest and best Christmas-themed destination in the entire United States. Quote, In this tract, I'll build a big Christmas castle right in the center, cutting down only what trees are necessary. He added, I'll erect scenes depicting nursery rhymes with life-size figures. All around the trees will be trimmed and lighted. He had but just one short year to make this all happen. Quote, I'll cut roads in and out so the people can drive right through, and maybe there'll even be a miniature railroad to carry the children. For about six weeks every year, it will be Christmas there. He continued, Many of the quaint houses will be freshened up and furnished with Christmas decorations and gardens. Six months later, all of the old machinery from the mill was gone. Harry Jr. was in charge of setting up the new manufacturing facility as the firm's tractor trailers hauled in equipment day after day. Three buses drove workers back and forth to Baltimore as construction workers rehabilitated the town. And tourists began to trickle through Savage just to see what was going on. There was an incredible sense of resurgence in the air as this old mill town was brought back to life. Of course, Savage is not a very good name for a Christmas town, so Harry Heim had a better idea. You're probably thinking something like Santa Land or Christmas Village or something along those lines. Nope. He renamed it after himself. Santaheim. Harry explained that it made perfect sense. Since Heim means home in German, this would be Santa's home away from home. For two weeks out of every year, Santa would spend his time away from the North Pole in Santaheim. Santaheim, Maryland. No, that's not good enough. He changed it to Santaheim, Maryland. And then the big day came. Santaheim officially opened to the public on Saturday, December 11th of 1948. An estimated 12 to 15,000 people were in attendance when Maryland Governor William Preston Lane officially dedicated the town to Christmas. It was quite the sight to see. An estimated 28,000 colored lights twinkled along the streets as speakers all around the town played Christmas carols. All the homes were decorated for Christmas, while a 20-foot or 6-meter tall illuminated star shined from atop the Christmasheim ornament factory. Santa arrived by helicopter and then boarded his sleigh that was pulled by live reindeer. Three trains coined the Santaheim Special brought visitors in from Baltimore and Washington, D.C. A replica of the Tom Thumb, which is the first commercial American locomotive ever, it pulled thousands of children around the town on a miniature train. A circus tent was filled with life-size animated animals, while reindeer pens were set up near the town's Baldwin Memorial Hall. And of course, inside that building, one could find the obligatory gift shop. (laughs) 
Even the 100-year-old post office was decked out in a fresh coat of red and white paint. Outside stood 10-foot or 3-meter tall candy canes. And thousands of letters poured in for Santa Claus from all over the country. So here's a sampling of what the children had to say. A girl named Judy wrote, Dear Santa, I think you are a nice man. Will you please come and see me soon and bring me a bride doll with a husband and anything else you can spare? Thank you. A really odd one came from a boy named Joe who wanted, quote, a two-wheeler, also a bale of hay. That was on my list when I was younger. Then there was a boy from Texas who requested, quote, a pair of pants and a washing machine and maybe an electric iron. Somehow, I think Mom may have been looking over his shoulder as he penned that one. Another boy wrote, quote, My dad is sick and my mother can't leave to get my presents. I think he meant presents. All I will get is from the school and the scouts and the neighbors. Wish I could get more, but I know you are busy. A girl named Aletha was a bit demanding when she told Santa to drop his bag of toys, quote, this minute, and come running to help her do her homework. Quote, I don't want anything else. Lastly, a girl wrote, quote, This is the last letter you'll receive from me if you don't leave me a doll carpet sweeper. This is final. I love you, and why don't you love me? But with that kind of attitude, I'm hoping no one ever got her that doll carpet sweeper. Overall, the opening of Christmasheim was a phenomenal success. Even before Sanaheim closed for the season, Harry Heim was making plans for the following year. He envisioned the construction of what he called a crazy town. You know, complete with the crooked roofs that you see illustrated in nursery rhymes and cartoons. Well, we're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsor. But when we come back, I'll tell you the rest of the story, including why Santa Heim does not exist today. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome back. After that first season, things did not go smoothly for Santa Heim. In April, Harry Heim was indicted for tax evasion. Basically, while filing its 1947 taxes, Heim's company Santa Novelties requested a refund on taxes paid in 1946. The problem was that no taxes were ever paid. Even worse, while the state of Maryland was investigating... They determined that Heim himself had paid no taxes on his 1947 income of $31,200. In the end, the judge fined Heim $100 after he paid the back taxes with interest. It was concluded that Santa Novelties had grown so fast, 
from $61,000 in sales in 1943 to $1,659,000 in sales in 1948, that the payment of taxes has been overlooked in all the confusion. Basically, everyone thought somebody else was doing it. Next, when Sanaheim reopened for the 1949 season, thousands of people showed up on that first Sunday to find the place closed by authorities. You see, Sanaheim was found to be in violation of the county's 1723 Blue Law that prevented shows on Sundays. Oddly, the law had been modified at one point to allow movie theaters to operate on Sunday, but most other forms of entertainment were not permitted. Of course, shutting down Santa is not a good thing to do, and the public clearly was not happy. Here are two letters to the editor that appeared in the Baltimore Evening Sun. The first was penned by James Woods of Baltimore. Quote, I just read the article, Santa's Blue Laws Thwart Santa. Things certainly are in a fine mess. I guess you're supposed to be ignorant enough to think that movies, bars, sports centers, and the Colts and the Orioles are necessary work. Isn't it just a little more important, especially at this time of the year, that our children have a place like Santaheim in which to enjoy themselves? I think it's time for us to see what the political angle is on the Maryland Blue Laws. The Blue Laws should either be enforced in full or written off the books. Next up is a letter written by Gladys Stewart of Glen Burnie. Quote, These children believe in an old tradition, Santa Claus. They are eager in their youth to learn about this old gentleman with the white whiskers, red nose, and jolly face. We can't deny them their belief. Couldn't we overlook this law just for the Christmas season? Well, this Sunday operation ban didn't last very long. On December 8, 1949, the state attorney for Howard County, that's Daniel M. Murray Jr., he ruled that Santaheim could reopen on Sundays as long as all the proceeds were donated to charity. Well, assuming that most of Santaheim's business was done on the weekends, this had to have made a huge dent in its overall profitability. One year later, that's December 8, 1950, there was another big setback for Sanaheim. This time, the fire marshal shut down its Christmas carnival. You know, that's the one with all the animals and animatronics. Well, it was shut down after it was determined that one of its tents was a fire hazard. Supposedly, 70% of the material that the tent was made from was considered to be highly flammable. At the same time, dangerous wiring was exposed all throughout the exhibit. Well, they quickly resolved this by covering the walls with a fireproof lining and, of course, removing that dangerous wiring. The tent was allowed to reopen two days later. Sanaheim was able to limp through that third season, but it was never to reopen. Harry Heim had overextended himself and the checks began to bounce. The war was over and the retailers went elsewhere to get cheaper stock for their stores. They didn't need Harry anymore. So soon his pockets were empty and both Santa Heim and his Santa novelties business were gone. The factory closed on March 27th of 1951. Everything, I mean 
everything in the town was sold off. That included the homes, the machinery used to make the ornaments, and the manufacturing plant itself. Today, the factory is home to the historic Savage Mill complex of shops and eateries. The loss of Santaheim and his business must have come as quite a blow to the man who had the honor of decorating the Christmas tree on the White House lawn in 1949. Harry Heim passed away on February 1, 1953, at the age of 69. The papers said that he died of a heart attack, but one can't help but wonder if it wasn't from a broken heart. He had tried so hard to bring the joy of Christmas to so many children. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. The Gift of the Magi is just one of the many interesting stories and articles in the December issue of Coronet Magazine. How much do you know about Christmas? Don't be too sure until you've taken the Merry Christmas Quiz in the December issue of Coronet Magazine. How many reindeer does Santa Claus drive? What is the famous Christmas opera? What well-known actor plays the role of old Scrooge in the radio? These are three of the 25 questions in the Coronet Merry Christmas Quiz. That commercial for Coronet Magazine is from the December 19, 1943 broadcast of The Little Coronet Show. Now, I know the sound quality isn't that great, but you may recognize the voice as the late 60 Minutes host, Mike Wallace. Coronet Magazine was a monthly digest-sized spinoff of its parent magazine, Esquire. It was similar to Reader's Digest, although maybe a bit more general interest at the time of its publication. Its first issue was published on October 23rd of 1936, and its last Esquire-owned issue was in October of 1961. It was then published in various forms up through September of 1976. The last person ever featured on its cover was actress Angie Dickinson. So here's a question for you. Can you name the most performed Christmas song of all time? I'm not talking about the most sold records. This is the most performed, whether on stage, on record, or whatever. And I'll give you a hint. It's not White Christmas. That comes in at number three on the list. Well, hang around for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In other news, here are three additional stories from the past about Christmas. When the news broke in early December of 1928, 
that seven-year-old Tilly Oakley of Paris, Kentucky was seriously ill, readers across the country respond with disbelief. It seems as if an older girl at school told Tilly that Santa wasn't real. Can you imagine that? Doubting Santa's existence? Everyone knows he's real. Needless to say, Tilly ran home crying to her mother, but nothing mom could say could convince Tilly that the older girl was wrong. Tilly stopped eating, and with each passing day she became weaker and weaker. She was proof positive that one could suffer from a broken heart. The local doctor was brought in to treat her, but nothing in his black bag could heal her. Nor could her parents, her minister, friends, or neighbors do anything to cure Tilly of what ailed her. People from all over the country sent scores of telegrams and letters assuring the young girl that there really was a Santa Claus. More than a dozen packages, some with return addresses that simply read, From Santa Claus, were received. But there was one big problem. An investigation by the Associated Press determined that there was no Tilly Oakley living in or near Paris, Kentucky. The story was a complete fabrication. So while there may be a Santa Claus, there certainly was no Tilly Oakley. (laughs) In our next story, the post office in Spokane, Washington had an interesting problem. On December 18th of 1955, someone dropped off 50 envelopes to be mailed. All were properly addressed and stamped, but lacked one important piece. All of the envelopes were completely empty. Apparently the mailer had forgotten to insert the Christmas cards or whatever they had intended to include. There was no return address on any of the envelopes to help identify the sender. And while you're about 63 years too late, should you know what should have gone into these envelopes, please be sure to contact the Spokane Post Office. I'm sure they'd love to hear from you. Lastly, here's a story that I've been telling on and off for years. In December of 1988, the restaurant chain Denny's decided to close all of its 1,221 stores for the Christmas holiday. This was not an easy decision for the company to make. That's because the chain was well known for being open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So closing on Christmas Day was predicted to cost the chain $5 million in sales. But they were faced with an even bigger problem. Since the chain never shut its doors, many of their restaurants were built without locks. Not only that, but those that did have locks, they couldn't find the keys. The company had no choice but to install door locks in more than 700 of its restaurants just so they could close on Christmas Day. Now my wife and I stopped at our local Denny's a few weeks ago And the first thing I did, you know what I did, I checked the front door. There definitely was a lock there. So earlier I'd asked you if you knew the most performed Christmas song of all time. Did you know? According to ASCAP, that's the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, the answer is, ready? Santa Claus is coming to town. Number two on the list was the Christmas song, which most people know better as chestnuts roasting on an open fire, and as I previously mentioned, 
Number three was White Christmas. Santa Claus is Coming to Town was written by John Frederick Coots and Haven Gillespie. The two had great difficulty in getting anyone to record the song because it was viewed as being solely for children. The first known recording of the song was by Harry Resser and his orchestra in 1934, but it wasn't a hit. When Eddie Cantor performed it on his radio show in November 1934, it became a smash. Within the first 24 hours, orders were received for 30,000 records and get this, 500,000 copies of the sheet music. Here's a snippet of Eddie Cantor's version. So you better watch out, you better not cry, better not pout, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list and checking it twice, gonna find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I apologize for my sniffles, but I've had a bit of a cold for a week or so. As I mentioned in the last podcast, I now have a Twitter feed that's at UselessInfoCast, at UselessInfoCast. So make sure you sign up for that if you'd like to be among the first to know when a new episode is released. Also, be sure to like the show on Facebook. You know, you can just do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast there and it will pop up. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, although now it's technically Apple Podcasts. Of course, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, or through any of the leading podcast directories. The Useless Information Podcast is part of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Be sure to go to recordedhistory.net to learn about all of the quality history podcasts that the network has to offer. I'm going to close by wishing everyone a wonderful holiday and a happy new year. And I'm going to leave you with the entire clip of Santa Claus is Coming to Town that I played before. Anyway, take care. Bye. I just came back from a lovely trip along the Milky Way. I stopped off at the North Pole to spend a holiday. I called on dear old Santa Claus to see what I could see. He took me to his workshop and told his plans to me. So you better watch out, you better not cry, better not pout, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list and checking it twice, gonna find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Oh, you better watch out, you better not cry, better not pout, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. The season is near for happiness time, gotta bring cheer with every last time. Santa Claus is coming to town. We've gotta dig deep and cover the list. Gotta see that nobody is missed. Santa Claus is coming to town. Let's keep the home fires burning. Let's give without a pause. Let's prove to those less fortunate that there is a Santa Claus. All the joy will be yours. That wonderful day, knocking on doors and shouting hooray. Santa Claus is coming to town.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.